becomes like a fleeting memory. Whatever you grab just turns to dust. Like eye contact with a stranger straight around the corner. It's a dream that you to make real. Passing those of the songs. All right. All right, we're rolling. We're rolling. All right. You ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So, uh, welcome to the Shores. Cheers to the Shores. The Shores. We have a special guest today. Yeah. Dave Kiesel. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, guys. Shoot, yeah. We've been, uh, we've been wanting to do a conversation on, uh, on money and uh, some things surrounding it and uh, Matt and I've been kind of putting it off and then I was like, Oh, we should have Dave on here. He likes to talk about money too. <laughs> so yeah. Let's bring so in. here you are. Thanks for coming on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Excited. Thank you. Yeah. So what's, what's kind of give us a little background. What, what do you, what do you like? <laughs> <laughs> what are you like or what do you like? What are you like? Okay. Yeah. What are you like? like? More like what's your essence, you know? Yeah, what is your essence? <laughs> essence of Dave. <laughs> Well, that'll just come out naturally, so, I think, over the next <laughs> hour or so. Yeah. But um, I guess, like, on this topic, it's just something I enjoy talking about. I started kind of this journey about 17 years ago. I started trading stocks professionally, like, for my own account full-time, and that's all I've done for the last 17 years, and through that journey... I've experienced a lot of different things and just thought about, had to ponder losses, had to ponder gains, had Mm -hmm. to think about um, money in different ways, just sitting there and staring at screens. Um, So a little bit different than someone whose job is indirectly tied to money. They might do a great job and make some money from it, um, but kind of just experiencing... Um, trading in daily gains, losses, kind of processing um, this direct relationship, I guess, between money and F or work or um, I don't know. Uh, what do you do before you trade stocks? Uh, my my background was engineering. Oh, okay, but I I didn't ever. Re- by the time I was out of college, I didn't really, I knew I didn't want to be an engineer, but I was <laughs> <laughs> What kind of engineering? Uh, so my degree was civil engineering. Okay. And I just kind of, I had a bad experience at an internship where like the company went out of business and oh, that's a bad experience. everyone <laughs> was like working. They knew they were going to get laid off, but they hadn't yet. And so yeah. I was just kind of in this corporate world where everyone was super depressed and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I don't, I can't do this. And. Um, that kind of started me a little bit on a journey of looking for something that I was interested in. And, uh, it took a few years, but that kind of led to finding an opportunity, uh, to trade. So. so do you trade with like a group of people or? Yeah. Um, it's called like a prop firm is a generic term for, um, a shop like ours, but it's a group of people who are all licensed, registered professional traders but we just trade our own accounts so we oh, don't sure. have clients or we don't manage money for other people oh um, fascinating which i've always kind of liked the purity of it. Mm. it it's all um kind of takes away some other layers of is my performance affecting anyone else mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. just myself and so when you say trade your own accounts <clears throat> does that mean like 
you're working with a group of people, but you're working with your own money or does the firm itself have a pool that you're all <clears throat> contributing to? Um, basically we just have accounts with our own money in it. And then the firm, um, provides, um, technology and administrative gotcha. and technical and you pay, and pay a fee to be there. Correct. Basically. Yeah. 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 Dude, I want to come play. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of fun. So when you got into that, <coughs> I assume you started trading and it went well, at least at first. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't have wanted to continue doing it. Is that true? Yeah. And so that was in 2005. And it was interesting how markets have kind of changed. Um, but when I first started, you could trade in a way that was kind of like a video game. Mm -hmm. Like if you were fast kind of on the keys and like s filtering data very quickly you could you didn't have to know a whole lot you could it was like you were playing um, an arcade game or something where it was you you could maybe not do amazing but you could make enough money to have a job and yeah. have a career and um <clears throat> over the years a lot of that has changed there were just ar arbitrage opportunities um, at that time that existed because there was no automated trading, right? Mm. So, um, maybe explain what arbitrage is. Cause that's something I didn't understand until very recently. Yeah. It's, um, arbitrage is just basically, um, finding some inefficiency in a market. So mm -hmm. specifically like what, with what we were doing in those times. And this kind of started, Way before that, in the mid-90s, there was a group called the Soze Bandits, and they were kind of the first, they were in New York, and they were kind of this first group of, like, digital traders. So all trading before that happened on the New York Stock Exchange for the most part. And so it was this open outcry system where you would have an order and you would yell at the specialist. He was the guy that took the orders, and you would get your order filled in. And some of this technology first started coming into the market where there was an electronic exchange, right? So you didn't have to go through this person. So there was these group of traders, and they kind of figured out that this electronic version of the exchange would sometimes have different prices than the, the part of the exchange that was controlled by this person standing there in the pit. Is that because they were moving at different speeds? It's just because they weren't centralized order systems, right? right? So if, it, if two people were in a different room talking about a price, it, you wouldn't hear what they were saying. So they might be trading something at one price, and you might be in this room trading it at a different price. Mm -hmm. And maybe it might be close, but it, if it was three or four cents a share off, then it would open up an opportunity that these guys kind of figured out where, oh, well, I'll buy on the electronic exchange and then flip over within a few seconds and sell it to the exchange that's controlled by the specialist and, and make three cents per share just by changing the, the stock changing hands twice. Right. Right. And so maybe it was three cents or five cents or maybe you hit a home run and it was 10 cents, mm -hmm. but it was typically looking for just very small, um, uh, returns that you could leverage and um do throughout the day multiple times and so that i think started maybe in the 93 94 the early 90s to mid 90s and 
those opportunities did kind of exist for 10 years or so. Um, in fact, there became uh, more electronic exchanges. So you could only not just arbitrage between an electronic exchange and the human specialist, but there were multiple electronic exchanges that you could arbitrage in between as well. So you could buy from one electronic exchange and sell to another. Mm-hmm. Um, then I believe in December 2006, they consolidated all the exchanges where they made new regulatory rules where they had to all go through like a central point, mm. right? So at that point, the game was over. It's like, okay, well, what if this exchange <laughs> is different than this one, mm-hmm. then orders from this one would now intersect with orders from the other one. Oh, so, wow. um, yeah. so, so how is it that if that ended in 2006, like arbitrage is still something that's talked about. Is it a, a different thing now? Oh yeah, there's you could arbitrage all kinds of. That was just arbitraging, like the same stock in different exchanges. You could right. arbitrage different stocks that have some kind of relationship, or different markets that have some kind of relationship. But a lot of the arbitrage switched to like automated, mm-hmm. high frequency trading. Mm-hmm. So it was more geared towards people who had access to um, technology that could um, basically just execute orders for them faster than everyone else. And right. so they would ar- then arbitrage also uh, different orders. Like you could place an order that they could react quicker than you. They could beat your order to the market because they were closer to the exchange. And, mm-hmm. um, so that's, there is some part of Wall Street. Um, I, I've heard it said by some traders, there's very few traders um, kind of in that world who like are taking real risk. A lot of them are just looking for some kind of arbitrage or some kind of setup where mm-hmm. you're just, um, you're not really taking a risk or you're taking a small risk. Um, and that's kind of the journey that got me started. And then over the years, as those types of things changed, I had to adapt, learn new things, kind of start um, exploring different ways to trade or make money. And so that's kind of been a 17 year journey and, hmm. um, it's always changing. There's always things that worked at some point and then stopped and like, okay, this is kind of like a reset. What am I, what do I need to learn now? How do yeah. I need to adapt? And how did, you know, moving from like civil engineering into trading change the way that you thought about money? It seems like you were hitting on that a bit at the beginning. Like most of us think about money as we do some work, we receive some money, and then we use that to pay for things in our life. And now you're making a living by treating money as, well, like something that you move around and change the value of, essentially. Yeah, so I think one thing was kind of starting to see a difference of, like, if there was... Like some certain amount of money could happen in a trade, whether it was a gain or loss, and that would feel different than if it happened in the outside world. Like if I lost some money um, just in in the real world, whether if it was from a car accident or whatever mm-hmm. it was, that would feel real. And the part, if I was losing money or making money trading, it, it would feel more like a video game or more like... Yeah. Um, 
I guess, and maybe part of that is if it's still at risk, it doesn't feel fully realized, mm-hmm. right? But then once it's kind of pulled out of uh, a trading or an investing um, program, or then it feels like, oh, I'm realizing this, <clears throat> and you're, it's like a, adjusting expectations that, <coughs> of what could be a loss, I guess, maybe. Like once you pull it out into your bank account, it's a thing that you can then translate into the real world. That's when it becomes real. I think so. That, yeah. So that was kind of one part of that experience. That, um, And then the other one was just kind of dealing with like daily kind of fluctuations and what I um, j- just experiencing the emotional um, aspect of making or losing money and trying to separate that from if I had a good day or not. Like, Hmm. I think I started to realize after years that if I, whether or not I answered the question of if I had a good day, that should be separate of if I made money or lost money. Right. Right. So it took me a long time to get to that point, but um, that was a a big realization, I think, at some point. It seems like it's so hard. Like, uh, I'm I'm kind of new in this, in this area. it seems like it's really hard to pull money out of that environment because like I, I, I tend to kind of like, well, if I take it out, then I don't have as much opportunity to progress in that or to make that more. Uh, I mean, do you kind of have like a system where like I need to pull this much money out every, every time or how does that, I don't know. I find it very difficult to take any money out because <laughs> I, I want it to keep working for me, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I think for me, just based on what I was doing on a daily basis, it kind of became a difference between trading and investing. So mm-hmm. I wanted to use trading to generate oh, extra sure. money to live on, but then also to invest. And mm-hmm. um, those w- were kind of separate worlds. Oh, uh, I'd love to hear more about that. Cause so, so when you think of trading and investing, trading is more of like a momentary thing and, tra- and investing is more of a long-term is that kind of what you're what you're gonna say? yeah like um the way i've gotten to where i like to think about it investing is more like collecting something mm-hmm. so i want to buy something that i don't want to sell mm-hmm. and i want to hold it for a long time mm-hmm. and i don't have any intention of selling it yeah. so it's like if i was collecting something and i just put it on a shelf mm-hmm. and i'm not going to touch it That's an investment. That's how I would think of that's the difference between a trade and an investment. A Mm -hmm. trade is a shorter time frame. It's more, a trade is to try to um, create some kind of return, um, but it's not an asset that I just, and maybe it is an asset that I want to hold for a long time, but this piece of that trade, or I'm using that asset for a short time, Mm -hmm. um, but the best way I've come to think about investing is that I shouldn't want to sell one investment to put into another investment. Hmm. I should want to just, that first investment, I should just want to hold it and then have earned new money that I buy that other investment with mm-hmm. um, and not always kind of be flipping around from one thing to another, hmm. right? So. Yeah, that's so hard. <laughs> I always find there's so many things I want to I want to buy and invest, or you know, whether it be trading or investing, it's like, and it's hard not to like, you know, 
find the ones that you want to put more time and effort into versus like the, the FOMO, the, the new thing that could have lots of potential to it or something like that. I think that's, I find that really (laughs) hard. (laughs) Yeah. I like the way that you think about it though. Like buying something that you know that you're not going to sell for something else. It, It seems like it would make you well commit to something say like, I'm not going to treat anything as an investment that I'm going to be willing to trade for something else. Yeah, I think also you just can get yourself into trouble, right? Because all assets are somewhat cyclical. There will be times where one thing's good and something else is bad. Mm -hmm. So that's where you get into this negative cycle of selling the thing that has done poorly mm. to buy the thing that has done well. Yeah. But then it, that might switches, be, right. It's right. like changing lanes on the highway. <laughs> exactly. you know? Great example. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. As soon as you get into the faster lane, yeah. the cycle switches. Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. So how do you think the average person thinks about money? Well, I think kind of one of the things we talked about, before the show was kind of um, maybe I think it's just kind of experiences that we probably get from our parents Mm -hmm. Um, unless you get lucky maybe and hear some one talk in some way that really impresses upon you but um, I don't know Um, yeah I thought it was interesting how you talked about how you thought about money from the way that you grew up and how you had to kind of change and 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 shift from that point of view as far as like what debt and leverage or whatever that is, how that, how that changed for you. Yeah. I think that, um, that was part of my journey is kind of learning how to use debt in a productive way. Right. Mm -hmm. So what kind of debt is bad? What kind of debt is good? Um, originally kind of having a mindset that debt is bad. I always need to pay it off as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, but then starting to see like, okay, well, if a debt is a productive asset like real estate or a business or something, then that debt is producing return that's greater than the cost of the loan. So, well, I should have a debt like that, but if it's some credit card debt or something that isn't producing any sort of return, that's what I need to pay off and get rid of. Yeah, so I think the idea of productive debt, like even me let's say three years ago would not have any clue what you're talking about Mm -hmm. because i think a lot of people myself included until very recently thought about well what's debt debt is a credit card and that was the extent of that category for me and it's all bad it's all somewhat predatory you don't want to live under the the thumb of those you know 20 percent interest rates or whatever so can we try to flesh that idea out like how can debt be productive So the easiest way for most people for a long time has been to have a mortgage. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was the real estate being like the only asset that you could buy where you could borrow a large sum of money at a very low rate. Mm. Right. And so um, that's kind of been historically one of the greatest ways for people to start building some kind of wealth or long-term retirement. Um, And typically that's worked over the long term. Now 
timing can be difficult if you're unfortunate, mm-hmm. whether it was 2008 or different times. And also location matters so much, like in different parts of the country. Um, you can make money in real estate very easily because you're just in a place that's growing a lot, mm-hmm. right? Where that's not the case everywhere. Right. Yeah. Um, and the idea is that I take out debt at a low interest rate for an asset, which is going to appreciate in value, right? So the loan loan to value goes down over time, which means that that debt is producing value for me. Is that the right way to think about it? And there's also that part of like where like over a 30 year period, the, the, do, the value of the dollar is going to go down. And so it's actually cost you less to pay back that, that loan. Is that kind of the, yeah, so those are the different parts. So if you're, like, whatever the cost of your loan, that might be 3.5% um, or 4 whatever it has been over the, the last few years. And so it's all, you're just trying to think, is the return that I'm getting out of this loan greater than that 35 or that 4%? And so it's if it's a rental property, then... Well, you're just comparing the return on the actual rents you get, the cost of owning the property. But if it's um, a house you're living in, then you're maybe comparing what's the cost of if I were renting. So, mm-hmm. um, but in general, um, yeah, then your payments are going to pay down your debt, build equity, and over time, um, inflation will make. Um, your payments um, in real terms cheaper and cheaper over time. So that's such a hard concept for, for I, I, I feel like I grab it better now, but again, kind of like with Matt, like up to maybe a couple of years ago, it's like that did not make any sense to me. Like, no, it's still a $300,000 home. Right. It's like, well, no, actually that $300,000 now buys less than it did 10 years ago. Right. And I, I don't know if I could have wrapped my head around that you know, a few years back, like now, I, I, now I see, especially right now with all the inflation that we're talking about, like right. 7% up to 14%. I don't think I was able to wrap my head around that concept until you and I got into crypto a couple of years ago. And it occurred to me because it occurred to me that I've always just thought, well, a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. Mm-hmm. It's a fixed value. Yeah. And then when we got into crypto and I was looking at a lot of different charts and thinking, at some point my brain went, wait a second, is the value of Bitcoin changing relative to the dollar? And also, or what if I thought about the value of of a Bitcoin being stable, being fixed, and the value of the dollar changing? Because it's just two different numbers and we're denominating them in the other currency. Yeah. But if you denominate everything in Bitcoin, then it looks like the value of the dollar flies around rather than the value of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And I, made me realize, right. Money is just a concept for a store of value Mm. and money stores more or less value depending on what it's trading at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, even like you think about a cup of coffee, like when I first started in, uh, you know, 2003, you know, a shot of espresso was a dollar 50 to maybe $2. That was like really expensive. It's like, now it's like up to three dollars for an espresso, you know, or a cappuccino. Like was two fifty. Now it's like three fifty to four fifty, you know. So it's like your what what your dollar could actually purchase is a lot 
less than it was in 2003 terms versus 2022. Yeah, and you can say <laughs> that the value of a cappuccino has gone up, mm-hmm. or you can say that the value of the dollars in which we price it has gone down. Yeah. Which I think that's probably the... I think that's more the realistic way, is that the, the, the value of the dollar has gone down versus the... <clears throat> It takes more dollars to achieve the same value, the mm-hmm. cappuccino value. Yeah. Like, especially when you think of like the, I love Sailor's idea of like money, that it's, it's a way that you store energy. And so like you store, <clears throat> like everyone's had like something that they have like a battery or something like that, that they have in some, some sort of gadget or whatever, you know, it's like, you know, you don't use it ever, but at some, at some point that, that, that battery life kind of keeps going down and down and down. And it's like, it's like, well, you charged it fully, but then after a certain amount of time, it's like it no longer has the same amount of charge. It, it leaks. It, it leaks, yeah. And that money is kind of the same way, uh, except, we, you know, the less sound it is, the more it leaks, you know. Uh, you know, yeah, it's like, and so I, I love that idea of sort of like seeing money or some sort of asset as a, as a store of value or stored energy that you're trying to preserve throughout time. So what, what, what asset has the best, um, uh, has the best application to be able to store energy across longer and longer periods of time. And I think that's why gold has always been something that has people have seen as been able to like store value over longer periods of time. And mm-hmm. it's, a, it's like you consider it a hard asset or a harder asset than most. I mean, uh, land is kind of one of those things too. It's like, it's like, there's always going to be a use for land. And then you could like, you know, Detroit kind of went through, a, <laughs> you know, a kind of right. a depression kind of thing, but it's like, it still has some, uh, I guess it does. It, it can lose, it can lose value also, but it, it definitely is harder than say, um, a garbage pail kid or something like that. <laughs> a what? A garbage pail kid? Yeah, you remember garbage pail kids? No. Do you uh, know what that is, Dave? Oh yeah, I had garbage pail kids. Oh yeah. I mean, I think I don't know if I was allowed to have them, yeah, but totally. we got them. Yeah. <laughs> is it, what is this? A candy? A drug? A, it's a trading card. It's a like trading a baseball card, card oh, okay. except for it's got like you know. Uh, so a candy and a drug. Puking, per, puking Peter, and it's like <laughs> Peter puking on something, or like you know. Sally's soaking or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so this was in the 80s, right? <laughs> so it was somewhat like, you know, Bart Simpson initially was very much not okay for parents, right? To yeah. let yeah. their kids watch The Simpsons. I wasn't allowed to watch The he Simpsons. He was disrespectful, right? Yeah, so yeah. Totally. the original was, bad boy. <laughs> it was totally. kind of that same type of deal. Here's these cards that mm-hmm. are silly or gross or this person. It's like a drawing of some character and maybe they have snot all over them or... Yeah whatever it's something gross and it was like oh the kids have these and you know that's bad those are we should ban these we should confiscate them rot their brains yeah (laughs) totally (laughs) yeah but i mean like a hank aaron baseball card has more nostalgic value that is preserved that preserves over time better than some you know unknown first baseman that nobody really cares about Mm -hmm. but it's also perceived value but i think that has a a huge thing as far as you know, how you store energy over time. I think we're, we've kind of, I think that's the hard thing about with, with, you know, we kind of probably going to get into the money side of things is like we, throughout time in history, we've, we've tried to find things that are able to communicate that stored energy in a way that is uh, divisible. So it's like, I have a cow, you have a chicken. 
it's like, well, that's not really a fair trade, you know? So it's like, how do we make this uh, a trade that we can, that we can both get the stored value in each one of those things. Like mm-hmm. I can eat uh, two months off of a cow, but I can only eat maybe two or three meals off of a chicken. And so like how we've kind of substituted this sort of, um, abstract form to be able to represent that value. Yeah. Money allows us to compare incomparable things. Mm-hmm. And societies that have been able to do that the best, have always been able to succeed. I mean, you think about the Roman empire, you know, being able to have some sort of centralized uh, coinage that that you can then take across that's that's redeemable for the same thing in Jerusalem as in Rome. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's it's something that because of there's a there's an infrastructure around that that says, hey, this is respected, and we will honor this coin. In, in representation of whatever you want to buy and some sort of value. Um, you know, it obviously like probably counterfeiting was a lot easier back then. Maybe, I don't know, <laughs> but it does seem like that's, that's something that has allowed, um, more cohesive, uh, societal, um, I guess more societal cohesion is when you have some sort of stored value that you can, that everybody shares and can trade equally, you know, I can buy for five denarii, I can buy a chicken or something like that. And everyone can buy a chicken at some sort of five denarii type of space. You know, it's like, it's kind of accepted and there's a faith aspect to it too. Hmm. But I don't know. I just want to kind of jump all the way to 1944, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we want to go through seashells and, and, uh, and uh, gold and all that kind of stuff or, well, I'd love to know maybe just a super general question for you, Dave, is like this question, what is money has been a fascinating question. I think for Michael and I over the past couple of years and changed the way that I've thought about money completely. I'm curious how you would answer that. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, that kind of as crypto has grown, a lot of people are kind of asking that same question, right? Right. Um, but uh, that question had been around for a long time with people who were really into investing in gold, Mm. so-called gold bugs. And, Mm. um, there's Exter's period pyramid, which is like an inverted pyramid that shows kind of, kind of this concept we're talking about, which is what is money and the things at the top of the pyramid might be fiat currency or tre- then it goes down to treasuries. I can't remember the exact sequence, but down at the bottom was gold. That was mm-hmm. the basis of what would be considered money. Um, now a lot of that's kind of changing, right, with Bitcoin and being able to use a digital scarce asset in the same way that maybe someone thought about gold mm-hmm. historically. Um but I think there is, to me, there's just a difference between an exchange, a currency that you're exchanging for an asset. So um, it's in the, the same concept you're talking about where, like you said, Matt, about being able to compare incomparable things, mm-hmm. right? So money can be that, but... Um, I think that was kind of where a lot of the gold people really broke down. They wanted to fit gold into 
this thing that we also always exchanged. But it just doesn't make sense in that way. It makes sense for that to be a store of value or um, versus a currency that you're trading every day for something else, right? And is it, it doesn't make sense. Is that because what's difficult to move around? Like it's easier for me to store, well, let's, let's say it's easier for me to put $500 bills in my pocket than it is to put $500 worth of gold. Yeah, I think that's for sure one thing. But yeah. then also, like if you believe something has like long-term value, it's harder for you to want to give it to someone else for something, right? So mm-hmm. Harder yeah. to let go of it? Right. So, where it's easier to let go of a piece of paper because it's conceptual rather than physical. Maybe it goes back to your kind of differentiation between trading and investing. It's like once you've got something you really like, you put it on your shelf, the value of it goes up for you. Like you don't want it to leave the shelf. Mm-hmm. Gold has that aspect. Yeah. And so just, you know, whether it's a dollar or some kind of currency, you know that you don't want to hold that for 30 years. So that's easy to. I guess maybe it just um, encourages commerce, right? If there's a currency that isn't also store value. Hmm. Hmm. I hope I get this right, but something that Austrian uh, Austrian economics that kind of made sense to me is sort of like the value of something is, you know, I'm sorry, I really love this example. So it's like you have 10 gallons of water and uh, you want a hamburger. It's like you're willing to give away one gallon of that water to somebody for a hamburger. But if you have one gallon of water left and you want a hamburger, that the value of that hamburger is no longer worth that one gallon of water because you need that water. And so like, there's sort of, sort of like, like value proposition as far as like <clears throat> the scarcity of something versus like the abundance of something. You know, so if you have... Um, uh, like there, there's only like, you know, I don't know how many thousands of pounds of gold there is in the world. It's like, there's a scarcity of this asset. And it's like, if I have a hundred of these, then I might be willing to part with some of it. But if I have like a, a scarcity of it, like one gold bar, it's like, I, I'd be less willing to, to part with it. So actually the value of that goes up. It's like, someone's gonna be like, okay, I'll give you five hamburgers for that, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. for that last gallon of water. And you're like, uh, I don't really need five hamburgers. Well, okay, what do you need? So it's like all of a sudden the value of that of that of that gallon of water goes up because you're not willing to trade it, but somebody's willing to give more than a hamburger which you're willing to give that gallon of water if you had ten gallons of water. So that so it's like that you know, it's like almost any trade is a fair trade because you are willing to depart, like part with some sort of asset or or good for someone else's good, even though someone might value those things differently. You know, it's like, you see that on like marketplaces like eBay or, uh, Craigslist, you know, it's like, like I have a tray chair I'm trying to get rid of, you know, it's like, it's probably, you know, we bought it for a couple hundred bucks, you know, and we're just going to give it away. You know, it's like, you know, it, we probably could get 20 bucks for it. You know, so it's mm-hmm. probably worth 20 bucks to somebody, but for us to go through the time and effort to get that $20, is almost more worth it for us to put on our street corner and give it away. If that makes sense. I think that probably makes sense to almost everybody. Mm-hmm. We've always been, all of us have been there. Mm-hmm. We have something that's probably worth something, mm-hmm. but not enough to make it worth going through the hassle of extracting that worth out of it. So it's like, yeah, just put it on the curb. I don't want to, you know, 
go take pictures and pay, post it on marketplace and then deal with all the idiots that, you know, <laughs> what a hack is this still, you? is this still available? Uh, $10. How about eight? Like, yeah. like, it's just, it's fucking $10 dude. Yeah. Come on. Like, it's like, it's not, it's not I'm not going to like, yeah. this is like $8 is not going to $2 more is not going to break you. <laughs> so that is interesting that there's a difference between the value of something, whether it's money or some sort of asset, be it a chair or a, a garbage can kid, garbage pail kid, <laughs> garbage pail kid, yeah, yeah, or like a Nolan Ryan there's trading card. Age, there's not too many oh, years of difference between us, but that that was like kind of a That's very a gap. specific yeah. thing, you know. It's like <laughs> I think for me in middle school it was pogs. Oh, see, I missed the pogs. Missed the pogs. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um. So there's a difference between the value of something as it pertains to what other people agree that value is. So things mm-hmm. trade at a certain price, whether that's dollars, which most of us think of one as one. So $1 to me is $1 to you. Then there's other things like material goods or commodities that, you know, um, they, they're worth what people will pay for them. Mm-hmm. But then you can have something like your example of a gallon of water. And if you have 50 gallons of water, you know, you're willing to trade it at market value. But if you have one, and trading that away means, you know, imminent death by dehydration, <laughs> then the value of that to you is much higher, mm-hmm. even though you know that you can't trade it at the value that it's worth to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that was an interesting or profound point, but I'm just trying to unpack. <laughs> well, I was thinking kind of this concept you talked about, where were you trying to sell it? Was it a trailer? Uh, no, it's a chair. A chair. Uh-huh. So <clears throat> that's something I've thought about a lot over the last few years is this idea where when we were growing up and maybe this is another thing when garbage pail kids were a thing <laughs> but like material things used to have value right mm-hmm. so um when we were kids in the 80s or when i was a kid in the 80s like something that you owned might get stolen mm. so it might be your bike or your skateboard i had a, I think i had a skateboard stolen or it might be your parents' tools or something. And things would get stolen because they could be taken to a pawn shop or somewhere. They mm-hmm. could be sold for something, right? Oh, yeah. And so now you're talking about, like, you have something and you just basically have to give it away, right? Because it doesn't, mm-hmm. it hardly has, in, you know, it's not even worth the trouble, right? Right. <clears throat> so that's, I think. Like a garage sale. Like, it's really, you can make 200 bucks on a garage sale or, like, or just take it to goodwill. <laughs> right. It would take you multiple days to set up all the tables, right? And no one's willing to pay hardly anything for some kind of physical material thing, right? Mm-hmm. So I've thought about that a lot and kind of this, I think it's the dynamics that we saw like pre, like free trade globalization and post oh, free trade globalization, right? So when I was a kid, you had... Like, things were just in general were scarce, right? So maybe you knew someone on the block who had the best G.I. Joe toy, Mm. but not everyone had it. Like, oh, the aircraft carrier, I didn't even know anyone who had it. It was $50. Mm -hmm. Like, good luck. (laughs) Or the um, Imperial Walker Star Wars thing. I knew one person who had that, but I didn't have it, right? Mm -hmm. So there was just genuine scarcity in the world, right? And, And things cost a certain amount they were they were more expensive relatively than they are now and i think this is interesting because i don't know if y'all heard biden's state of the union but he talked about this idea of onshoring of bringing things back 
to be made here in America, right? Mm. Um, so what's interesting about that is we did have that a lot historically. And um, one of the things that we saw from like NAFTA and these free trade agree- agreements through the 90s is it genuinely did make things cheaper here, mm. right? So it, it got to the point so much that you could buy a bunch of junk mm-hmm. and it was super cheap. And when you're done with it, you just threw it away, yeah. right? Now, right. Maybe some of that was also quality. It's just not made as well, so it doesn't last as long. But some of it was because, well, there's just other cheap junk out there that we can go buy or someone else can go buy. So it's not worth the risk of stealing someone else's stuff hmm. and getting in trouble and going to jail or whatever because you can't get anything for stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... That was, I think, a consequence of, okay, outsourcing all the manufacturing to other countries, making things super cheap, bringing them in here. Um, And now we're kind of maybe starting to see those dynamics maybe start to reverse a little bit. And so I wonder if some of those concepts, those ideas will kind of start going the other way Hmm. at some point. Well, I, 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 now you got me jumping all over the place now because I'm, now I'm thinking about, you know, once you have an iPhone, you know, that's kind of like your your opportunities sort of like expand hugely. And so you don't have as much junk. It's more digital or information that you're 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 working with. Uh, and, and if you are done with an app, you, all you do is delete it. You know, like I think of the things my kids value the most, uh, besides my son, he likes airsoft stuff, you know, it's like, but most of my other kids, like it's really a lot of it's digital. Like that's kind of more of their life is, is in a, is a digital form, which you can have, um, you can just get what everybody else is getting because there's not, a, it's 99 cents, you know? So it's not a big deal for everybody on the block to have the same app. You know, unless you remember the the diamond app, it no. was like right when the the iPhone came out. It was like within the first couple of years or whatever. It's like it was this app that was worth thirty thousand dollars or something like that. <laughs> and it was like a status thing. If you yeah. bought this app, is like and you had the diamond app or whatever it was. But it was just, all it was was status. That's all. It was. There was there's yeah. no functionality. It, it didn't to do it. anything. It didn't do anything. Didn't have to sell very many of them though. No, exactly. Yeah. You sell ten of those. You're like, oh, well, that's a really fascinating ROI. point in terms of like. <laughs> I'm thinking about the iPhone as a symbol of whatever this is. Mm-hmm. When you talk about things becoming cheap and, and existing in a world of abundance, you're much more likely to just get rid of something and get another one. It's like, yeah. rather than extract the $20 out of the chair and then use that to go buy something at Target, it's like, I'd rather just spend the time going to Target and spending you know a different $20. And the iPhone's interesting because before the iPhone digital devices like computers Mm. were highly valued, not just in monetary terms, Mm -hmm. but in terms of like, if you got a computer, you babied it, you took care of it. Mm. It mattered a lot. Mm -hmm. And then the first iPhone came out and what did cell phones cost before that? Like a hundred bucks, 150 bucks. First iPhone comes out six 99. Yeah. It was unbelievably expensive Mm -hmm. and people stood in line to get it. And then within a couple of years, the iPhone is no longer, like we all carry them in our pockets and none of us think about the, the physical object of the iPhone as having any value at all, mm-hmm. you know? 
and we get a new one every two years. What does that cost you? You have no clue. <laughs> you could go look on apple.com and see that it's worth a thousand dollars, but functionally it's not worth that because you didn't pay for that. Mm-hmm. You didn't cough up a thousand bucks. It's probably subsidized in your cell phone bill and you just roll it over and, you know, get, get a new one every two years or whatever. So this physical object now has no meaningful value to you. It's just simply a portal into a digital world. Mm-hmm. And everyone has this expensive object, this thousand dollar object, no matter what they make. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if you're on, you know, minimum wage or if you make 400,000 a year, he's got the same thousand dollar object in your pants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The iPhone is the thing I've kind of thought of to contrast mm-hmm. that other concept when we were kids mm-hmm. and, um, someone on the street had a, Laser disc, y'all remember? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. right. So one person had a laser disc and a big screen projection style TV, right? Mm-hmm. But iPhone is the thing now. Like you're saying, everyone has it, right? Yeah. So it's this difference. This concept of scarcity is just different. So I think a lot of that is is been um, globalization, and hmm. it's we're kind of seeing some shaky. Um, instability in the foundations of globalization right now and kind of wondering in 10 or 20 years will things be the same right right will there be different types of scarcity and we're kind of already seeing that now with used cars going for more than new cars different Mm -hmm. things like that right Mm -hmm. um yeah wild things that like the used car prices going up so much is something i never would have predicted right it's always been the example of what you should not invest in right? right like Oh, don't spend a lot of money on a car. It's just going to go down in value. You yeah. buy something that, right. And yeah. so I yeah, but my it, used car that I bought three years ago is worth something like $6,000 more than I paid for it. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. So it, it's a perfect example of like how the world can just be crazier and differ different than you could ever imagine. Right. Like no one would have ever thought like, Oh, invest in used cars, mm-hmm. you know, and here we are. Hmm. Yeah. So I kind of want to get into that. Like, where we're going, um, where the global financial system is going. But I think first I want to, you were talking at dinner before the show and I want to hit on something or get you to expand on something you said about the moralization of money and monetary policy, which I think is a really interesting subject because so many things are changing, whether you, you talk about, um, the U.S. dollar, uh, the global financial system, cryptocurrency, you know, our money is changing out from under us in one sense. But it, in another sense, it's it hasn't ever, at least as far as I'm concerned or aware, it's never been so moralized. Like in America, we've come to use money as a way to judge people as you know, good, bad, moral, immoral, based upon where they fall on some discussion about money. So I'm curious to know what you meant when you said that and what your thoughts around the appropriateness of attaching morality to money are. Yeah, so I think um, kind of this main concept I've thought about is not specifically money, but what you would call fiscal or monetary policy, right? So how do these central authorities um, respond or react in a way that affects us all? 
So to me, that's what I moralized because these power structures have the ability to make decisions that have consequences on the rest of us. So in that way, there could be things that they could do that to me would feel morally right or morally wrong because I believe that those actions had either positive or negative or less negative uh, consequences, right? So part of that journey for me was just being involved in investing and trading and really um, having a high regard for the concept of free markets. So free market capitalism where maybe it's not every, maybe, you know, certain people have um, more advantages or disadvantages than others, but there's some set of rules that we're all playing by, right? So there's, there's risk, there's reward, right? If you if you overextend yourself financially, maybe you'll go through bankruptcy or pay some sort of price. Or if you do something that benefits the market or the economy, maybe you'll get rewarded. So um, to me, I really valued these concepts in some certain way that at the first time kind of experiencing this conflict was in 2008 with Mm -hmm. the way that they responded to some of the things that were happening that led to the crash in real estate, right? So in my mind at that time, well, you had certain entities that did things that were either um, against the law or maybe they weren't against the law, but they took too much risk and um, the market, the in capitalism, they should have paid the consequences for taking too much risk or taking too much debt or doing something that wasn't wise, right? So, and then the government and the Fed coming in and basically bailing out different institutions, kind of picking and choosing who they're going to send money to. And then no one from any of these in the financial world world going to prison or having to give back any of the money that they made through this process. And that's kind of the first time I really started kind of struggling with like, okay, this doesn't feel right to me. It feels like there would have been a right way to respond and this feels wrong. Mm. Right. So, um, and then all through kind of that period after 2008, the fed was continuing to do quantitative easing. So they were, um, taking a policy where they wanted to um, encourage um, risk assets, right, to go up. And to me, that was wrong. It felt wrong because the the market should determine what these assets are doing, right, not some power structure, centralized power structure, right? So, um, and then we kind of, kind of seeing what happened in 2020 was like a more aggressive even response. And um, the Fed buying corporate bonds, lowering interest rates, sending, bailing out the airlines who probably should have done things differently and put them in a posi- themselves in a position where they didn't have to be bailed out. And did they, I, I'm not even sure I was aware of that. They bailed out the airlines in 2020? Uh-huh. Yeah, they did. Hmm. And so that was a concept that was super difficult for me because 
the justification that someone like the airlines or someone who was advocating for that would use was like, oh, if we don't have airplanes, then the whole economy shuts down. No one can go anywhere. Right. Which is just kind of creating like a straw man argument for something because the reality of a company going through bankruptcy isn't that they just disappear and the planes would dematerialize into nothing (laughs) and now no one could fly, right? It was just that the first the equity holders the stockholders would go to zero Mm -hmm. and then there would be bondholders who held the debt and they would go through some bankruptcy process and the judge would say oh these are the assets and this is what the company's worth and the bondholders get this and then those assets someone they might just restructure and then start the company kind of going the same way from there or it might get bought from someone else but those planes and that company would that business would still exist. Right. right. So it's like a way of revaluing something back to reality. It seems right. Or matching the value to reality. It was, um, that's how kind of markets and capitalism were supposed to work is if you, if you ran your business poorly, then you lost Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. someone else would come in and, buy something and they would try to do it better and if they did it well they would do well and make money right so mm-hmm. that concept had been removed and I was re- I had really struggled for a long time with getting held up and stuck and being angry that it wasn't operating in the purest sense of what I believed the system or the market should mm-hmm. Right. And so, and I gen, genuinely do think that whether or not it's morally right or wrong, it's better for society. So hmm. I don't know if now I would say it's wrong, but I do think it would benefit everyone better if things were done a certain way. But what I really struggled with is allowing myself to get caught up in being angry about that or bitter about how things were and then finally kind of struggling with and accepting this reality of like well that's we we just don't have that kind of system we don't have a pure market we don't have pure capitalism um and so if i want to get stuck in that mindset of being angry about that it's not going to help me at all Hmm. it's just going to but isn't there some sort of like long-term thing here? Cause I feel like they're also hitting on some like basic axioms, like, you know, maybe we call it capitalism, but so, you know, if you have a spoiled kid and <clears throat> they lose something and you just give them another thing, well, they, they have less and less value for the thing every time they lose it and you give it back to them because they know that you're just going to give it back to them. So like, so like in this sort of, what I'm kind of pulling at, you can kind of correct me if I'm wrong. It's like when a capitalism system, it's like, if you're not responsible for the thing you're given, then you lose it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, and, and maybe there's some ways like, you know, bankruptcy that might help you to like, okay, I'm going to downsize this and reformulate and come back. But there was some sort of loss or accountability in that. Uh, You know, but if you just keep giving the, the kid, whatever they want even when they're not responsible for what they want it just seems to lead to almost a greater and greater catastrophe so it's like there's a part of like wanting uh, you you kind of mentioned this earlier was like wanting the world to be a certain way versus the way it is and it's like 
I think there's that part where it seems like there's like there's a greater catastrophe on the horizon, but how far out that horizon is, we don't know. It could be two months or it could be 10 years. But I think something that we do know is I think that's kind of where, you know, something that you, I feel like you kind of sense in a, in a way is you're saying there's something about this that's not right. Mm-hmm. And that can be true, but the world also functions in a way that's also not right in so many ways. And, and so mm-hmm. it's like, how do you, how do you work in a world that doesn't function in a way that is, you know, quote, right, you know, and, and however we're discovering the, those principles versus like also working in a world that is, um, operating in a way that's sort of immoral or not right, you know, does that make sense? So it's like, because it does seem like, I mean, those basic principles, like at some point it's going to come back to bite you and you're going to lose everything. <laughs> you know, it's like the whole thing about debt. It's like no, at some point it's going to like, you know, there'll be con- consequences, consequences right? at yeah. some point. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I guess part of my journey was like trying to focus more on what are the parts of this that I can control and what mm-hmm. I can't, right? And yeah. I've been so frustrated because I can't control um, the way that the system is working. Okay, can I just let that go and focus on the part I can't control, which is adapting to the reality of the way that the system does work, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's almost like, is there like a like short-term gains that you can make by other people's mistake and greed? And then there's also like a long-term sort of hedge to what those what that actually ultimately means. Does that make sense? Like, you know, the world's going to function this way. It's like okay, but we but we kind of know at some point that's not going to work out. So there's like a maybe this is <laughs> maybe this is feeding into the system. But there's a way that you can kind of gain off of other people's greed. That, but knowing that at some point that's that that will end. Um, is that like is that like uh, just the same thing? Just like from a maybe moralizing sense, <laughs> it's like you know, it's like is if you know the world functions in a certain way, it's like okay, hey, they're going to bail out all these these companies. Well, I'm going to invest my money in this certain way because like the government's going to do that. It's like I don't think it's right, but you know, that's what's going to happen. And but at some point, that's going to not work out anymore. And so you also have to hedge and and in a way that is in a way that kind of meets that inevitability, whether it's like, you know, I guess you hear like the gold bugs, you know, since probably 1971, (laughs) you know, there it's like, it's going to be this year, you know, (laughs) but it's been 40, 50 years now since, uh, 50 years since that time. So they're, they've continued to hedge. Although, you know, right now, uh, well, can I just throw out a bunch of stuff and we just see what we can make of it or do you want to sit on something? Can I go back just real yeah. quick mm-hmm. to follow up on what you both just said? And I don't, I don't know if I can put this together coherently, but when it comes to the question of morality and money, I mean, it feels like to your points about free market capitalism, um, you know, you're trying to answer basic questions like, you know, what is a, what is a hamburger worth? You know, and I think we all sort of instinctively just sort of say, well, things are worth what people are willing to pay for them. But it is, at its root, like fundamentally, uh, a pursuit of truth. 
like, what is the truth? What is a hamburger worth? And that's kind of a dumb question because it's like, well, hamburger might be worth an average of this, but what is a good hamburger worth? And what makes a hamburger good? And the only way that you work this out is through participating in this system of capitalism. You know, the only reason that you're incentivized to figure out if you could make a better hamburger is because we do value things based upon the trueness of what they are. And anytime a policy comes in and manipulates that system, it prevents us from searching for the truth. Hmm. And in, in that way, our dollars, our money, our participation in the market is free speech and democracy in the pursuit of truth. And so economic policy, which manipulates that by either bailing out an airline or a bank or whatever, um, prevents us, blocks us from expressing our sovereignty in the pursuit of truth and happiness, which is sort of like the fundamental value of the Western world. Mm. So I, in that way, I can see how policy could be absolutely immoral because it robs human beings of their, their sovereign voice in democracy. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I think, or is that super dramatic? <laughs> no, I would say I would kind of rephrase it a little bit. Like what you're saying to me feels like this concept of, um, like all playing by one set of rules. Right. I think that's mm. maybe what feels wrong or immoral is, like a lot of times we feel like we're playing by one set of rules and then all of a sudden you'll see some other entity not have to face the consequences of some action mm. that you would have had to face They're the exempt from right. those rules, yeah. And so um, I, I think that would be a legitimate um, argument for why an action could be right or wrong. Is um, And that's kind of how I felt, I think, when in 2020 when one of the things the Fed did was buy cor corporate bonds, that to me felt like an egregious action where it's like, wait a minute, that's not how the system is supposed to work. That's, you're breaking the rules, right? And I had to basically reframe my mind that like, oh, there are no rules. Hmm. Like it's, like kind of there's some frameworks that we all basically participate in, but there's not some like, I can't go to some third party and say, well, the Fed broke the rules, so they should get in trouble, right? Hmm. It's like, well, they can just do whatever they want, right? So, yeah. Well, let me push back on that a little bit, because like, I, I think there's there's two things here. There's the, because like, there's, there's, the, there's the, the idea that we do create, we do create somewhat like an arbitrary system, you know, it's like, and, and. But at the same time, we're sort of formulating that all on, I think, some more base layers. So it's like, so even though, you, you know, like you were talking about, you were operating on these rules. So it's like, for some reason, you felt that those rules had some sort of base layer to them that was not necessarily that more like government and economic policy were based on rather than dictating from them. You know, it's like, it's like, oh, that those make sense. It's like, well, why do they make sense? Because there's some sort of cohesiveness that comes from that. You know, it's like, you know, okay, hey, you know, you are not responsible with the resources that you have and you've, you've hedged too far out or got too much leverage, then yeah, you lose that. You know, it's like, 
because you would have gained if you that worked out for you. Therefore, you would have. But that's the risk you take within this game, mm-hmm. and it's like, like that's like kind of a basic principle in life. I mean, there's, you know, whether uh, you're talking about our ancient ancient ancestors, you know, as far as like those who took more risk, you know, probably died, but also were innovative and and were able to kind of move their clans into the future. You know, it's like, and we're able to bring people together and the better the systems that they were the more that they were able to live in prosperity and move into the future better you know so there's something that there's like some core principles there that are more true not that they're true but they're more true and i think that's something that we're always trying to we're always trying to move towards and that i think that's where whenever you because like because i just feel like there's two things warring it's like it's like being playing in the world as it is versus as it should be. And I think that's if you lose the, the drive to play in the world as it should be, I think then you lose perspective of, of everything else. And hmm. because, because again, if I think everybody should be millionaires, you know, well, what does that look like? How does that play out? Well, there's something about that that doesn't play out because, you know, it's like if you have a, somebody who is a millionaire and they lose that money, well, should they be a millionaire still? You know, it's like, it's, it's something about that. It's like, well, we'll just give them another million. It's like, and then they lose it again. But somebody who is a millionaire and then they go and make 10 million, well, should they only get, come back to 1 million because they were responsible and they invested well or, or whatever it was and, you know, just got lucky, you know? It's, so there's, there's, there's some sort of principle in place there that, that you know, seems fair but it can also seem unfair because hey everybody had a million dollars and this person made it 10 this person lost everything three times Mm -hmm. and then you can also come into this the argument of like everybody comes into this world as you know i have one dollar you have 10 million dollars and everybody in between and well it's not fair i only have one dollar and this person has 10 million dollars but still we still see on a basic level that that same principle works is like if you're responsible for that one dollar, you'll have ten dollars. You know, it's like so. There's this, so I think that's the part that when we start talking about the morality, it's not necessarily money; it's our actions that are moral. Uh, if you're right. responsible with something, then then there's there's something more true in the way that you're interacting with the world. But but if you lose the money, it's not necessarily that you're being immoral. You know, it's like because it's like I mean, again, you look at every sort of entrepreneur; they've probably bankrupted two or three businesses but they got back up and did it again and again and mm-hmm. one of those worked out so there's some sort of principle even that like every person i can think of that respect you know, i always think of uh, elon musk you know tesla or spacex and he did the gamble both you know it's like you know it'd been smarter if he would have done one or the other and gave a better chance you know mm-hmm. it's like i don't know does that make sense I, I, yeah yeah, I think so. I think that does really kind of tie in to what we were talking about, where it's the morality comes into play when you feel like the consequences or the the risk or the reward doesn't match mm. maybe the action mm-hmm. or the choice or the um, and, and so that that is what I kind of I think struggled with for a long time mm-hmm. and I don't think I'm not saying that I think we should abandon 
like what we're striving for or what we should want Mm -hmm. but there is a certain frustration that can come I think with um, living in opposition to to your reality right Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe that doesn't mean behaving in a way that goes against your values but maybe it's more about expectations Mm -hmm. like right what are the expectations that you have for the people around you or the system that you're involved in and right so don't I don't any longer expect um, the the system to play out in some way that I wish it did you know now my Mm -hmm. expectations are that it's going to be different and that's not what I want but that's the reality yeah it seems like we you've both hit on this point now like Michael, you put it as, like, do you behave as if the world is the way that you want it to be or that it's the way that it is? And I think you just recapitulated that, and it seems to present a a dilemma. Because if you behave as if the the world is the way that it should be, and then you're confronted with the fact, well, the world isn't that way, it's the way that it is, Mm -hmm. you can become jaded and thereby corrupt and think, I'm going to play the game as shrewdly as possible and engage with the world the way that it is, you know, and you're going to, you're going to, well, you're going to take advantage of the way that the world is. And adapt to, to behave similarly. Right. Yeah. Right. right. And so of course you're going to establish a, you know, a cartel or a a mafia or whatever. Um, of course you're going to bend, you're going to find every way to bend and break and escape the rules to your own advantage because the world is the way that it is. And that's part of the way the world is. Whereas if you operate only in the way, if you're operating the way the world is and you're losing and you think I, you know, the world needs to be different. It needs to be better. And you operate only as the way the world should be. Well, you're operating in like some sort of fantasy. Naive. Yeah. You're naive. Mm-hmm. You're going to get taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. And so the, the place that you need to be in order to remain moral is the place that, pulls reality from what it is into what it could be. Hmm. And this is your point about there's, you know, money isn't intrinsically moral or immoral. It's about the action that you take with it. Hmm. So you can take a dollar and turn it into 10 or take 10 million and turn it into zero. And this is all acting in the world to, to cause something to happen. And so what, you know, what is, what is the proper direction of, of society and the proper direction of, of money it's mm-hmm. it's not up or down. It's whatever moves us forward into prosperity mm. through time as we as we leave the way the world is currently and enter the way the world will be and could be. Mm-hmm. What well, kind of makes me like uh, even like Jesus talks about like uh, you know innocent as lambs, but uh, um, shit, just lost it. Innocent lambs are sly as serpents. You know, it's like this idea of like 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 seeing the world as it should be. And obviously that's a formulation and that, that will be corrected and refined through time as, as you experience that and, and the world pushes back at you and you, you kind of refine that idea of how, what the, how the world should be um, with how the world is. But I think there's that part where, you know, you have to, there's a certain shrewdness that you have to have in a way that sort of protects 
maybe you, your family, your society, your country, or whatever it might be, but it's got to be moving you forward to a world that is better for everyone. And, you know, I think mm-hmm. even with our kids, I think you brought this up too, like the list thing. You know, it's like, here's the list I want, here's the list that you want. Well, our kids' list is, is uh, I'll let you, no, I'll let you just tell the story, but basically our kids' list is, is a dream list of like, I want ice cream. You know, it's like, where the things you want for them are something that is going to be, it's not really for you, it's actually for them. And so it's like, you, you're, you have to have some sort of forward vision that's actually good for other people. If that's not included in it, then you know, in the world, how the world should be, it's like, it's also good for you because you're sending your kids off into the world and for them to be successful, you know, it's like, um, you know, whether relationally or financially or whatever it might be. I kind of told the story for you, so I was going to have to... <laughs> let me tell you Dave's stories. <laughs> but does that sound pretty accurate? Or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, and it, it's the outcomes aren't moral, or the outcomes aren't always fair or just either, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not even, like, our efforts. Like, someone can do their best or do the right thing and still lose mm-hmm. money, right? Totally. So, um it's also kind of separating the outcome from the intention or the action is mm-hmm. like, it's not tied to always, there's just so many outside factors that we all are coming into contact with that. Um, there's so many things about money that you just can't explain, like whether it's luck or, or unluck for someone or the right moment, the right opportunity, some they're meeting the right person at the right time. Right. So, um, but I get what you're saying about, I think we have to respond in the way that we feel like, um, like, like we're doing the right thing according to our value system. Right. Mm -hmm. And, sometimes we'll be rewarded financially and sometimes we won't Mm -hmm. but there's some level of um responsibility i guess in that seems like what's your time frame too you know i think of like so many immigrant families like immigrant families come over here and the mom and dad work their asses off and it's and and it's for their and their children have a sort of a better future than the, what they did, you know, where they came from. It's like, but their time frame was so much more, was bigger than the present. Like it wasn't, it wasn't even about them. It was about providing a better future for their kids. And I mean, it might've been like also just being able to escape whatever, you know, country they came from or whatever it might be. There, there was obviously some, they might be experiencing a better, a better, um, uh, a better life than they were in their former place. But at the same time, you see them sacrificing for their kids. Now, whether, you know, you know how they did that, that, that's a whole nother thing, but it seems like that's a very common immigrant story. You know, whether you're talking about, you know, Irish, African, Indian, whatever it might be that have come over to the United States and like work towards something. But that's the thing is like, the United States, even in its you know corruption and aspects of that, it's like there was some sort of rules base here that provided enough room for the opportunity to succeed in some form or fashion. Hmm. And so, if you take that away, it's like, 
that was the very thing that brought people here was to, because there was that opportunity, there was that risk. And what if, what, if, what happens if you take away that risk and you make the world safe? You know, I think that's the thing that, you know, sort of, you know, communism and maybe a more extreme socialism and that kind of stuff is like, we want to make the world safe. Well, what does that do? That, that takes away risks, that takes away opportunity, that takes away accountability and the state's taking that on themselves. And so what does that, what does that do to a people whenever you take risk, accountability and responsibility away from people? And again, there's a, there's a level of, you know, the state does provide some of that, but I think there's definitely a, a teeter totter of <laughs> what's good and what's not good and keeps us a, a society healthy and, and prosperous, you know, um, which I feel like the United States has been that uh, has been that sort of American dream. Now, whether it's perfect or whatever, that's a whole nother, <laughs> whole nother conversation. I mean, that's a really interesting, <clears throat> really interesting point mm-hmm. in that if the structure is secure, meaning that the rules are secure, it doesn't really matter if the rules are fair or unfair. It presents opportunity to everyone who chooses to participate in the system. Mm. Because if you live in a place, a society where the rules aren't predictable, it's like you don't even get to ask the question about fairness. It's like, I can't win at all because the rules are changing constantly in ways that I can't predict. So I'm, I'm just at, I'm beholden to some power that I have no control over. Mm. And my life goes the way that they say it goes. And everyone wants to escape that. So they want to come to America where there is act, where there is opportunity because the rules are predictable and they don't change on us. And even if that's less fair, sorry, not less fair, even if it's not fair within that system, mm-hmm. it's a massive opportunity because you can't have opportunity. Um, you can't have opportunity unless you are allowed to expose yourself to risk. Mm-hmm. I think is the point you were making, which I thought was a good point. <laughs> Makes me think of like democracy is the best form of government. Uh, well, it's the worst. It's, it's the, the worst form of government, <laughs> except for all the other forms of government. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or, or a republic, maybe in that sense too. You look like you were going to say something. <laughs> well, I was kind of thinking about kind of what you were talking about as um, this it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier about hope, right? Mm-hmm. So it ties in with there's if there's certain socioeconomic groups or of people who don't believe that their effort might um, might generate some sort of positive return or gain or success, mm. then that's when they don't try, right? Right, mm. so. It's kind of that idea of if you if you believe that it's there will be some sort of return on the risk that you're taking, then there's motivation to take the risk. Right. But if you feel like the rules are laid out in a way where you're at a disadvantage or they don't apply to you or it doesn't matter what you do, you're still going to be in the same place, then what's the point? Right. We're not going to try. Right. Right definitely seems like there's a certain parental element in that you know it's like no matter what your what your social social or economical background is it's like 
you know, a lot of successful people, you know, across ethnicity and, and economic, economic backgrounds and stuff like that. Like I hear this idea of, you know, you can do whatever you put your mind to. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of, that's kind of mean too. It's like, cause it's not true, <laughs> you know, but there's something about that perspective that, you know, if you work hard, you know, and you, you put your mind to something, it's like, like you will gain something. And, and that it's not, no one's going to give you anything. I, I, I hear somebody like, like, like basketball, I've been watching a lot of basketball documentaries lately. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, whether it's Michael Jordan, who like just endlessly, endlessly practices, you know, Kobe Bryant, the same, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, it's just sort of like, we just see them on the court performing this amazing feat, but the the time and effort that they put into it and they could just have, have, you know, given in to defeat over and over again. And whether it be, I mean, it's, you know, famous Michael Jordan with high school basketball, you know, it's like, so there's something about that, that an entrepreneur is again, kind of what we were talking about earlier. It's like, it's like, there's a certain like ethic or, or mindset that you, you have to, you have to kind of like move into the future with is like, almost like anything is possible. I don't even know what's possible. So I need to somehow give myself to that idea of something is possible. Um, because I think if you don't have that, no matter what your circumstances, because everybody has a circumstance of some sort, you know, whether you're, uh, your dad's an alcoholic and beat you or, you know, uh, you know, you, you came over here on a float or something like that. It's like, it's like that. It, it seems like there's no other mindset that can really move you forward in life if you don't have that the idea of th- that something is possible hmm. you know it's like because i think the the whole idea of like give me something just leads to kind of nothing you right. know it leads to <clears throat> <laughs> sitting on the couch or something like that you well know? it's back to the idea of value hmm. you don't really value things that are given to you as much as you value things that you have worked for hmm. Which is why maybe that ties back into our, the, your Dave, your observation about like we value physical things much less than we used to hmm. in part because there's an abundance of them. Yeah. Hmm. But just thinking about systems as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, we're, this is another sort of dilemma that we're caught in, which is that however successful we are at achieving prosperity, whether that's financial or like reproductive prosperity, like passing our genes down the generations, as you know, you were describing with your um, point about immigrants and timeframes. However you define success, it's like we seem to be successful in part because of the systems in, in because of the rules and also despite them Mm. at the same time. It's like, I love this um, this concept of create creativity requires limitations. Hmm. So, like, if I say to you, Michael, hey, be creative, you're like, what the hell are you talking about? Be cre- What do you mean, be creative? But if I put a blank piece of paper in front of you and a sharpie, and I say, be creative, you're like, okay, you know, you could do something with that. So it's like, are you successful at being creative? because of the rules or despite the rules. Hmm. 
Like you're creative despite the fact that I limited you, but you were also enabled by that. Mm-hmm. So as long as the rules are defined and agreed upon and obeyed, it allows prosperity and opportunity. And maybe Dave, to your point about like the immorality of certain parts of the system, not playing by the rules that breaks that down for the rest of us. And I think, I think, um, causes this despondency of people to say, well, I don't have any hope of playing by this system successfully. So why even try Mm. just not going to participate anymore. Mm-hmm. And they become seriously disaffected. Yeah. What kind of like <clears throat> do we want to do? We want to kind of move into some uh, more like historical gold and money stuff, or what do y'all where do y'all want to go from here? It's a good question. Yeah, I think we've kind of like ejected kind of, into the philosophical. I know we didn't go into the philosophical, but do we want to? Uh, Cause there's a, there's a couple of different areas that I know that we could, this could be probably a three hour episode. So yeah, <laughs> because like there's, there's certain things that, that, uh, you know, I, I'd like to, I mean, however you guys want to do it, I'd like to analyze maybe some, like, like what do we see for the future and like, what do we hope and what, you know, how do we want to kind of, or maybe even how we individually are kind of investing, whether time, money, effort, whatever it might be, into the future or do we want to kind of go back in time to um, some super fascinating things with just the U S and the economy and the gold standard that was established in 1944, the U S dollar on a national uh, on a global scale into 71 was decoupled from gold and what that meant and the petrodollar, that might be a whole nother conversation. I think that's, a, I think that's another conversation at this <laughs> yeah, point. We're totally. about an hour and a half in. Uh-huh. Um, but I think you hit on something that I think would be a good place to, to have the final part of the conversation about, which was Dave, something you, you, I think put down that you wanted to talk about, which is this question. How do we, how do we face an unknown future without fear? Mm. Because I think, you know, part of where the historical conversation is going Mm -hmm. is, you know, we're all staring into an unknown future. That's sort of like always true, Yeah, (laughs) but it seems a bit more true right now. Mm -hmm. And without making that case, um, about why that might be the case. I think this is a really good question. We're facing an unknown future. That's scary. And how do we move into that? Mm-hmm. You know, without being so afraid that we're immobile, frozen to death. So I'm curious your thoughts, Dave. So, yeah, I think part of it is kind of the things you were referencing, Michael, is if trying to understand a little bit more about where we came from, how we got to where we're at, right? Um, And also trying to understand more about what the potential outcomes are. Because part of the fear, I think, that we all face in the future is if if it's just totally unknown with no boundaries to what might come. And obviously there, like we, none of us thought that COVID would hit in 2020 right so (laughs) anything can happen but i think if you're at least facing the future with some amount of probabilities that it helps i think to maybe be comforted by um at least having some concepts that you can maybe expect or or look for and, Mm -hmm. and to know like when things are 
different than you thought they would be because now you're seeing something new. And um, so I think the history is important. Um, but then there's also just other aspects of just like trying to, um, trying to let go of things you can't control. Um, trying to find the meaning in all the other parts of your life that aren't tied to whatever your financial outcome is, right? And mm-hmm. so trying to um, remember and get perspective. And I, I think that's there's historically like benefit to... Here, here's another part of like the morality piece of what upset me a lot about kind of the Fed and the government response over the past um, 10 or more years is I think there's societal benefit to difficult times, mm-hmm. right? So when things aren't going super smoothly, a lot of times we'll stop and we'll think about what's really important. I think a lot of people did this during COVID, right? So it's like, you know what? Things are crazy. Um, I value my family more. I value my relationships or I value these things in my life that maybe I wasn't focusing on because I've just been so tied up in trying to advance my career or, or, or whatever it is. Right. Um, so historically when the economy was maybe allowed to cycle more naturally, maybe a society, we hit those reflection points more frequent frequently. Right. Mm -hmm. But when the financial system is continuously bailed out, then it's almost like we're not allowed as a society this opportunity to let go of chasing. Because a lot of things about, it's stressful, right? Um, When you're seeing, like living here in Austin, when you're seeing it grow so much and you're seeing all these buildings go up and all these, the real estate so expensive and it's stressful because you're like, oh, those people are doing all these things and making all this money and I, I'm not keeping up with that or I'm not participating. Mm-hmm. And you're, it's easy to just kind of get fixated on that, right? But when things aren't going so great, right, everyone can kind of break free of that fixation. Um, so I think that's one thing is just trying to... Um, get to those places when we have the opportunity that like maybe things aren't going to work out maybe um, in the best possible way that they could financially. So remembering I have this opportunity now to focus on family, focus on trying to become a better person, trying to work through issues that I have. Um, So that's one thing, but that's not super practical as far as like, how do we, what actions do we take or how do we mm. look at the future in a, in, in a way that we feel confident, but it's maybe that concept of anti-fragility, mm-hmm. right? So how can I make my life anti-fragile? And maybe that's just, um, part of it is just not, not banking, not putting all your chips on like, Oh, I'm happy if I have the right investments or if the economy keeps doing well or yeah. um, if the future ends up like I hoped it would be. Mm-hmm. Right? 
Yeah, the COVID, <clears throat> the COVID thing was a really good illustration of that in a very local way. So I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we were having conversations just in our friend group about like, yeah. like, oh my God, which of our favorite businesses are going to go under and like be gone? You know, my favorite bars, my favorite restaurants, my favorite corner market or whatever. We're going to lose these things. Um, and then I think sort of about our conversation about the morality of monetary policy and, you know, would it be better if the government came in and subsidized the um, failing businesses so that I didn't have to lose my favorite places? And I think the answer to that is no, it wouldn't. Because had they, then every time I visit those places, I can't trust it. I can't trust that they're going to stick around because I love them. Hmm. They're going to, they're going to stick around because someone has decided that they will and is, is making that happen. So my trust is no longer in my favorite bar. It's in now the government to keep my favorite bar open. Hmm. And so I'm no longer interfacing directly in a relationship. I'm interfacing in something that's propped up and it's artificial. Um, and I think about what you said about, about difficult times being healthy for society. And I thought about sort of the, the archetype of the parent, I think most often the mother Mm. who's constantly pretending that everything's okay and demanding that everything's okay. You know, and at dinner saying, we're all going to be happy and talk about nice things because we're a happy family. And you think the fuck we are, (laughs) you know, and it's miserable. And, um, and we all know this because it's been represented in art and we all uh, in movies and stories and we all can relate to it in one way or another. Um, and I think we all respond to it negatively because what we want is not happiness. What we want is truth hmm. because you can't trust happiness, but you can trust the truth, whether or not that seems to be good or bad for you as measured by things like happiness and wealth, success. It's much better to have the truth, even if that the truth is my favorite part went out of business. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. The, that, that's, a, that's an interesting... Uh... Damn it, you just, you just got me in so many different places. Um... <laughs> Well, it reminds me, because you were the one who recommended Fourth Turning, right? Yeah, so, yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, it's like this sort of like this psych, the cyclical aspect that's almost healthy for us to go through. It's sort of like this, you know, which is which is uh, uh, bookend by crisis and awakening. And, and that's something that mm. uh, in the Fourth Turning, it, it basically, it was written in 1997 and, and has basically predicted this sort of like, we're in the crisis mode right now. Uh, and it could in 2025 or 2030, he was writing this in 97. So he didn't really have like a, <laughs> he didn't have a horoscope to tell him what it was. <laughs> but, but it's interesting because in the times of crisis is when institutions are completely demolished and also reinvented. And it's like, you have to have a company has to kind of go through, uh, and societies and fa- family groups or whatever. It's sort of like this, you need to have these crises to sort of allow to any of the fat or the, the stupid stuff to kind of like be taken off. I mean, it's this idea of like, uh, 
you know, silver being refined. You know, it's like you have to take the dross away. And in the times of crisis in societies is that time when the, the dross is sort of taken off and it makes the, the silver more pure. And, you know, it sucks. Nobody wants to go through crisis, but it's actually a really healthy, you know, part of our experience. And it helps us to engage in reality in a way that's a lot more, um, a lot more real. And I think it's something we definitely resist to our very core crisis. You know, it's like mm-hmm. we will deny the truth of our inabilities for so long until it just stares us in the face. Like I just think of like a, um, you know, drug addict or something like that. It's like, I don't have a problem. And then at some point it's sort of like when they're at their, their, their furthest downest point, it's like, I have a problem, but they had to go through a crisis so strong to bring them to that reality that they had a problem. And, you know, you know, other times there's like, there's, there's many crises that we have that we don't have to reach rock bottom and, or maybe you have reached rock bottom before and you're like, I've been there. I recognize this and I'm going to acknowledge it. You know, it's like, so I think there's something healthy that, that we need to also be able to embrace crisis. And I think that's what makes great entrepreneurs is, being able to embrace the chaos or the crisis and understand that this is actually a refining process that, that on the other side of this is something that is new and actually amazing, which kind of moves you into sort of like crisis fourth turning into the second turning, which is the awakening into something amazing. And, and everyone's like, Whoa, (laughs) uh, um, Does the fourth go to the second? Is there no first turning? Well, sort of like the fourth and the second are sort of like the the pinnacles, and then the third and the first are sort of transitioning. Gotcha. Um, uh, times. This uh, is Chris Howell. Is that his name? The author. I, I think forgot. it's Neil. Neil Howell. Neil Howell. And I think you're right. Neil Howell. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was so anti-Asian. <laughs> this pro. I was pro Asian. Okay. Good. Good. We're we're good. Then. We're good. There was a quote going around Twitter a few weeks ago that kind of reminds me of what you were saying and I think it was something like it was uh, hard times create strong men did you see this? Mm -hmm. right so strong men create good times good (coughs) times create weak men weak men create hard times Mm -hmm. right so that's the cycle that's kind Mm -hmm. of the essence of the fourth turning right And I think that book specifically what I took away from it is was kind of uh it it sounds ominous right when you talk about like the fourth turning the crisis but what what the book meant to me was more about hope more Mm -hmm. about um this idea that things aren't always trending in one direction that they're cycles and so Mm -hmm. that's one thing when we have been through difficult parts like this that doesn't mean that all of a sudden things are going to get easy Mm -hmm. But it does mean that that things are dynamic, they're cyclical, like there are going to be difficult times and there's going to be other easy times and we can appreciate the good times when we get there because we've gone through the difficult stuff, mm-hmm. right? So, hmm. You were saying something at dinner before the, before the podcast about um, like you've thought that it would be possible for some politician to sort of, Mm -hmm. if they were a good enough communicator to stand up and basically say, look, here's the situation. 
and be honest. And, and it's tough. And here's what we're working with. Here's what we can do. Here's what we can't do. Here's a path forward. Let's go down that path. It's going to be hard, but on the other side is going to be good things. And I think Michael and I's <laughs> response to that was kind of like, ha, yeah, good right. Luck. <laughs> good luck with that. You know, but as you're, as you, as you talked about that cycle, hard times create good men, good men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times. Well, to the extent that things are hard now or becoming harder or more scary, it's like a forge from which will emerge hmm. strong men. And I think, I think about that in two ways. One, I think, oh, wow, okay. I have hope that someone could emerge who could say that and not just come pander to us hmm. about the ways that they're going to improve our lives and the ways that they're better than the other candidates and all of this bullshit. And, you know, back to like, the point earlier about truth and the person who wants to pretend like everything's happy. And I thought also about Biden, like making all these pronouncements about how, you know, he's broken all these records about how good the economy is. And I'm just thinking, you're just lying to me. Mm. You're just, you're, you're lying to me with statistics mm -hmm. and I despise it. And you're not the first one to do it, Yeah, you know, but I'm tired of it. And I think, okay, you just laid something out for me that gave me hope that someone could actually step through. And then the second part of it is it could be our children hmm. who are the ones who step through. And that yeah. may even makes me more excited mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. that we're moving into, you know, out of a fourth into a first into a second, you know, and it's probably not going to be us. It's mm -hmm. definitely not going to be the boomers and the Bidens and the Trumps and you know, probably not even the Gen Xers. Mm -hmm. It's going to be this generation, which is, in my opinion, severely fucked and impaired by the last two years. Mm -hmm. But out of that is going to come some really strong people. Mm -hmm. That gives me a lot of hope. It's exciting. Well, shit, let's end on that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> This was an awesome conversation. It really was. Dave, thanks so much for joining us, man. Yeah, yeah. thanks guys great. for having me. Yeah. Yeah. So you're on Twitter, apparently. Anonymously. Anonymously. <laughs> so, so we won't put you on. Dave is not on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Kiesel is not handled. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's cheers, y'all. <laughs> no. All right. Thanks for coming out to the shores, guys. Thanks for being in this conversation. Yeah, Thank for you. sure. We'll see you guys next time. See you yeah. next time. Bye.